Welcome to Awakening Divine Wildness, hosted by inspirational speaker and best-selling author, Mal Duane. Mal invites you to embrace your divine wildness with powerful conversations with visionary women. Listen in and learn how to move from pain and heartache to forgiveness and freedom so you can live the life you deserve. I am so excited about today's guest. This woman is just so accomplished and her journey is so inspiring. And I, my heart just breaks open to have her on the show and share what she has gone through and where she is today. Dr. Catherine Hayes is a dual certified professional co-active coach and Enneagram facilitator with a DMD from Tufts University and a master's and doctoral degrees in epidemiology from Harvard University, where she also completed a dental public health residency. She's a certified executive coach with the Leadership Circle Profile and the Collective Leadership Survey. An authorized, certified Rizzo Hudson Enneagram teacher an International Enneagram Association certified professional and accredited teacher. She's a speaker, and now she's a best-selling writer with her <laughs> new book, Everything is Going to Be Okay. Catherine brings the ancient teachings of the Enneagram to life as she recounts her journey from the projects of South Boston to the faculty rooms of Harvard. She's a gifted storyteller, a teacher, and she artfully illustrates how to apply the Enneagram to fully understand our true selves. Catherine, I'm so excited you're here today. I read your book. I loved it. Thank you, Mel. First of all, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for your kind words about the book. As you can imagine, sharing a personal journey is a very vulnerable step. And when it's received in the way that you describe, it means the world to me. It's very hard to write about our families and the dysfunctions that can go on, especially when we're children and we're and everything, you know, is so impressionable. So share with us a little bit about your childhood and what you went through. Yeah, so I was one of uh, seven children, actually eight. The first baby died, and we never met her. The oldest. And um, I think by the time, and that obviously had to be very traumatic for my mom. And we lived in the projects. Um, so there were, when I was born, I had four older siblings, and then subsequently there were two younger ones. And I think uh, my mom was was really overwhelmed, understandably. And so I was kind of, I felt invisible much of my childhood, you know, and really was the outsider. And for whatever reason, I would hear, well, you were, they took the wrong baby home from the hospital or you were adopted. And, you know, when you're three years old, you don't know what that means, but you, what you do know is you don't belong. So I had this sense of not belonging and, and feeling invisible. Like, what, what's, what was this? And then when I started school, I loved school. <laughs> I, I went to Catholic school. First, kindergarten was public school and then Catholic school. And I remember one particular day, um, my first grade teacher, Sister Luke, a nun, talked to us about guardian angels. And she said, they live on your right shoulder and you can talk to them anytime. And I remember just feeling like, oh, wow, I have a guardian angel. I'm not alone. You know? And it was really, really, exactly. Yeah. 
I, I love the way you say, um, you know, how your sisters and brothers said you were adopted. Do you know, my sister and brother did the exact same <laughs> thing to me. I cracked up when I read that. And the fact is that I believed it after that because they kept saying it. So, mm -hmm. and I was so different looking than them that I said, it must be true. Yeah. You know? So it, that was not a great thing to take on at a young age. But Catherine, share with me how you handled the mental illness that your parents experienced and how you, you know, progressed through that and continued on your journey. Yeah, I, you know, I have a couple of memories about that. Um, it, first of all, I had, I always had so much compassion for my parents and I always felt like I wanted to be a good girl so that I didn't cause them any stress. And I also, I didn't want to feel angry with them. And I felt that if I was angry, that meant I was bad. You know, I actually remember going to church by myself after I made my communion. I would walk and St. Monica's Church was right outside our projects. And I would go in on Sundays and just, you know, ask God to make me a, a good person. And with my father, um, he was diagnosed, I think, when I was about eight years old. I'm not sure exactly the timing, but he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And he was in the VA hospital in Brockton. And I believe he was in there for about a year. We couldn't visit him because we were too young, but we had these neighbors, these wonderful neighbors, Peggy and Mike Flaherty, and they took me and my sister, Christine, who's two years older than me, to visit my dad. But And what he did was he came to the window and he waved at us. And I, to this day, it just brings such tears because um, I felt so sad for him being in this hospital and he was in his jammies and he looked so thin and it just, he felt so far away. Um, and I just had this tremendous compassion for him that I never lost. And my dad was a very good person. He went to church every day and, um, you know, he was a good man. He worked nine to five. He took his medication. My mother's, um, situation was a little different. So my mother, um, she had major depression at one point, I think it was around eight. They were both in psychiatric hospitals at the same time. And my grandmother, also Catherine Hayes, took care of us. And I remember going in to visit my mother, again, with my sister, Christine. And she was sitting in this, um, I guess it would be like the room where they have activities. And she was in a chair, and she didn't even really look like my mother. And she looked so sad and thin. And um, she gave us these little leather purses that she made, one for me and one for my sister. I could cry. Um, and I treasured that. You know, I... Excuse me. Sometimes those memories, you know, no. I think what this is too, is that um, I always felt so sorry for my parents and, and my mother, particularly I, for whatever reason, I was kind of the, the one in the family that she targeted. And, um, you know, I was born on her birthday and I used to say that was the first thing that got her upset. And I joke about that, but she, and it was her illness talking to me. I know it wasn't my mother and I've gone through tremendous deep work to forgive my mom. And, but she would say things like, you know, I wish you weren't my daughter and I wish you weren't born. And my dad would always step in and say, oh, but he called her Obi because her maiden name was O'Brien. Obi, she's your daughter. And, you know, you should love her. And I know, you know, as I've gone through my life as an adult, that it wasn't that my mom hated me, but it was her illness. And, but as a child, that was really hard to hear. And, 
I always felt like, well, I had to do better. I had to do better. And so school came, became the place that I could do better. And that at home, I felt kind of invisible, but at school is where I would shine, you know? And so that, it, I had these kind of two parallel lives, school and home. And I love how you write about being in that arena, arena of, of learning and knowledge and excelling and spelling um, bees and being the best <laughs> in the class. But you had a premonition very early as a child, yeah. which I just love, which stayed with you. And then, of course, comes out very, very powerfully later. Mm. Yes, this I get the chills even just talking about it now. I remember this as if it was yesterday. I was walking to school and, you know, at the time I didn't realize how strange it was to be walking to school by myself as a six-year-old through the projects, but I was. And I remember walking, you know, the projects end and there's just a little strip of a street before you get to Dorchester Avenue. And then my school is on the opposite side of that. And I was walking down the street and it was just like, as if I had this, it wasn't just a thought. My whole body just felt this sense of like, it was like a peace that came over me and it was, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. And I remember I just stood there and I thought, I felt so peaceful. I didn't know what it was. I now believe it was grace. But at the time I was just, everything's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And I totally trusted it. I never doubted it. And whenever things would get tough, I would say, remember, it's going to be okay. So it was like this touchstone that I had for for really many, many years and have recently come back to it, as you see in the book. And you share so openly how you go through Harvard. You know, you carry that belief that everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You get married, very abusive individual. You end up moving back home. That is a disaster. And now you're out on your own with a, a small child. But again, mm-hmm. you knew everything was going to be okay. Yeah. Take us from that point with all these accomplishments and 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 how you persevere. You know, I remember um, one day I was I used to I used to be a jogger and I was jogging around the reservoir near my condo in Brighton and it was when I had made the decision to leave my husband and I was so nervous because I had student loans and had this child. I was in school getting my doctorate at Harvard and I thought, how am I ever going to make this work? And I remember just, you know, asking God for guidance and it, it just had the sense, you know, you have to do this, you have to leave. And I did. And it was really challenging and it was very challenging with my family but um, I was fortunate to always have an ama- amazing group of friends and mentors and colleagues. And um, I finished Harvard in 93 with my doctorate in epi- epidemiology and had already had my dental degree. And I went to, to uh, a faculty position at Tufts University where I got my dental degree. And my son, so my son at that point was about three and a half. And I remember... Um, working, uh, part of the work that I did was treating veterans at the veterans clinic in Boston. And I remember sitting one day at lunch, talking to one of my colleagues. And I said, I would love to buy a house, but I have so many student loans. I don't know if I'll ever get a house. He pulled out his card. He said, my wife is a realtor in Newton. You should call her. So I said, well, okay, but first I'm going to call the bank and see if I can qualify for a mortgage. So I had this wonderful bank officer, I remember. And he said, look, we don't look at student loans the same way we look at other debt. So anyway, I qualified for the mortgage. 
I remember looking for a home and with this lovely wife of my colleague, we found this house that I loved and it was for sale by owner. And I remember put a, an offer on it. And then the husband wanted me to like fire my broker. It got kind of messy. And I thought, no, I'm not going to get involved in that. When I hung up the phone from him and said, I'm not going to, you know, uh, bid on the house anymore. I, I was disappointed, but then I had immediately had this thought, I have this amazing intuition. It's like grace. And it, it was like, don't worry, there's a better one around the corner. I think it was about four days later, I found the house that I'm still in today. That was 1995. And this house was on, it's in a quiet street with the most amazing neighbors. And so it was yet another gift. So I always trusted this guidance. You know, I would just, it would always take me in the right direction. Grace showed up again. It did. And then you talk about being out with your dog, taking yeah. a walk so it's several years later. And what happens? So this is really interesting. I don't remember the actual accident. What I remember was, and my doctor said I probably never will, but the witnesses told me it was uh, my dog. I had a Wheaton Terrier, Angus, who was very precious. He's no longer with us, but um, they have to get haircuts because they don't shed. So I took him to the groomer, which was his least favorite thing to do. So I was then taking him to the pet store for his favorite treats. I remember getting out of the car and um, going to get him to bring him to the pet store, but I don't remember anything after that until I woke up. What happened, according to the witnesses, was my dog got excited because he was going to his pet store. I There was black ice. I lost my footing. And I fell backwards and landed on my head on the concrete. And I was unconscious. I don't remember any of that. What I do remember is, um, I don't know how long I was, I was unconscious, but I remember at one point seeing some two colleagues having a meeting about a research project. And then I, the next memory was everything was really black. I couldn't see anything. And I was numb to the very tip of every finger and every toe. And I thought, am I paralyzed? It was so confusing. And I had another one of those, it's time to change your life. But, I mean, everything, I was so confused. And there was this really kind, I hope someday I see this person again, older gentleman leaning over me, asking me, are you okay? Are you okay? And I couldn't speak. Finally, I could speak. And I said, what happened? And he told me you fell and landed on your head. And then I had a leash, a dog's leash and collar in my hand. And I looked at it and I said, do I have a dog? My dog was sitting right next to me, sweet little Angus. He didn't have his collar on because he pulled right out of it, but he sat right next to me. Yeah. And that started a trajectory of um, change in my life. Yes. Mm -hmm. You started to realize there were more important things to do besides continually proving yourself yeah. to you. Mm -hmm. Constantly so. keep proving your own self-worth. Yeah. So you've gotten involved in some wonderful uh, programs, the Enneagram, Diamond mm -hmm. Heart. Um, and now you're coaching and leading people mm -hmm. after spending so much time studying these modalities and what they've done for you. Yeah. So share a little bit about the transformation that you do now with your clients. What I do now with my clients is... Um, what happened to me, I feel I, I consider my accident a wake up call. It was like it was time to wake up to who I really am and not who I had to become. 
And we all through our lives develop a personality and ego is just part of normal human development. And then we believe that that's all of who we are. So what I do is I help clients to really see the, the vastness and the truth of who they are and that their personality, and I use a tool called the Enneagram, which is an ancient wisdom coupled with modern psychology. And it's a lens to look at our kind of unconscious patterns of behavior. Mine was an overachiever. And the under, underneath that pattern was a need to prove that I had value. I wasn't aware of any of that. And, and there's different types. So for example, someone who's a perfectionist might underneath that have a sense of feeling cut off from um, an inherent sense of goodness that we all have. And so what I help clients to do is to see how their personality is limiting them. And I help them to, with a lot of compassion, no judgment, let go of some of the patterns that aren't serving them so they can really step into the truth of who they are. And, and it's very freeing for people. Whether you're um, in an organization, a corporation, uh, sitting at home, it doesn't matter. We're all human. And so I work with people in organizations, privately, and I really help people to connect to their true self and live a life that's free and authentic. And that is probably one of the most important lessons that all of us can learn is to be who we really are. I know for women, it's very difficult. We try to be something we're not. We mold ourselves, adapt ourselves into personalities to attract other people into our lives or to keep them. And once you can let go of all of that pressure and just stand up and be you, life is just so much better. It really is. It's so freeing, isn't it, Mel? It's so empowering. Yeah. And I learned that when I got into recovery. I mean, I spent so many years of my life chasing love and wanting to feel appreciated and valued. And I would just change myself completely to fit what I thought that other person would want. Mm -hmm. And I was so unhappy and so miserable that that really just inspired my drinking further because I couldn't really be myself. Yeah. Yeah, So it's so important. I want to share a wonderful quote from your book um, to the listeners. And again, the name of the book is Everything is Going to Be Okay. And obviously, Catherine is a living example of that. She keeps having these divine downloads when grace just takes over and changes the path of her life or brings her complete comfort. And I just thought this really was so powerful. Our suffering comes from fighting with reality instead of accepting what is happening and doing what is necessary to be with it and get through it. We wish it away. We long for things to be different. We cast blame, get angry, or wallow in self-pity over the way things have turned out. But we cannot change reality. Mm -hmm. That's what we all need to learn. Yeah. So true, isn't it? Yeah. Catherine, you're giving um, with the book. I know that there's a promotion right now that's a free gift to anybody that orders the book online. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I know it's just a magnificent meditation. Share with us what that is. Thank you, Mel. I, uh, it's a meditation that I use with a lot of my clients. It's really, you know, we are so used to trusting that our mind is the only 
guiding force in our lives and our thoughts and our history and our you know intellect, but actually our heart and our body have so much to share with us. And what I do in this meditation is I really connect people back with their body wisdom and their heart wisdom. And when we do that, we actually have a clear and illuminated mind that brings great gifts. So I, I help people to really connect with themselves more fully. Oh, beautiful. beautiful. And um, so much of the work that you do, it's, um, it's, not, it's not difficult for people to experience this transformation that you're teaching. I mean, you are a master at it. You are certified up and down and left and right and inside out. I mean, you have really embraced this as your work now. It's, um, you, you're no longer actively doing medical, right? No, I do some teaching. You know, I do still do some teaching at the dental schools, Boston University and um, Harvard, but um, that's the very small amount of what I do. Mostly I do the coaching and... Yes. No. You're so dedicated to it. Well, uh, Catherine, where can people reach you if they'd like to, you know, get in touch with you personally? Thank you, Mel. So my website is katherinehayescoaching.com and my phone number is on there, but my office number is 857-404-0584. And my email is katherine at katherinehayescoaching.com. Wonderful. It's just been such an honor to share this time with you today. I, I loved you the minute I met you when we were, doing a program together recently and I said I've got to get this lady on the show she has got a great story inspiring I love women that have walked through the fires of hell and are now on the other side and rising up as these beautiful phoenix and serving others so it's it's just a beautiful story and thank you again so much for your time thank you so much Mel it was such a joy to be with you thank you oh bless you dear Thanks for listening to Awakening Divine Wildness. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with a friend and leave some stars and a favorable review at iTunes. And be sure to visit MalduaneCoach.com for your free Heal Your Heart, Reclaim Your Worth six-week video course.